Welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Fred Shanklebert, the guest host for today's RAM special episode. While attending the Reliability and Maintainability Symposium held in late January 2016 in Tucson, Arizona, I had the chance to sit down with Bill Tont. While attending, while attending the Reliability and Maintainability Symposium held in late, late January 2016 in Tucson, Arizona, I had the chance to sit down with John Elrath and talk about his work as a reliability consultant and some of the work that led to him being a successful reliability consultant. John is currently the sole proprietor of Elrath Reliability Consulting. He's been doing that for a little over five years now. His specialties include reliability modeling, predictions, and field data analysis, plus supplier audits and manufacturing process capability analysis, and a raft of other statistical methods. He has a PhD in reliability engineering, and it was a focus on hard drive reliability. His career while he was working for his PhD, happened to be with a company that used a tremendous number of hard drives. So he had a, a lot of firsthand experience working with those devices. Please join me now as we sit down and talk about John's work as a reliability engineer and his career. Welcome to Dare to Know. This is Fred Shanklebird, your host, and today I'm joined by John Elrod, who I've known for quite a number of years, and we've chatted about various things at various times. So welcome to Dare to Know. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thank you. I remember at one point, um, I think it was during your working for your master's degree, and it was... You had the advantage, I think, over most master's or, master's or PhD students, is that you had an amazing wealth of data available. You were working on hard drive reliability. Yeah. You know, so how did you blend, how did you get your advisor to let you use your company <laughs> as, a, as a data source? I was, I was working on my PhD and, and uh, it was at the University of Maryland. I was doing work with uh, Dr. Pecht mm -hmm. and he, through, through developing standards and interactions with other people, he could see and learned a lot in the last some number of years since some I number years some number years since I graduated, yeah. <laughs> and he thought, you know, you might be might be good at that, uh, uh, you know, a PhD because if you take a person fresh out of college, they don't have enough world experience, and it's sometimes very difficult to to have the knowledge you need. It's not very broad based. Mine, I've been around for quite a few years, and it's fairly broad based. Mm -hmm. And so he said, asked me what I want to do my thesis on, and he said that was fine. Well, that so, was easy. That was easy, yeah. And my company wanted me to do the work, so that worked out quite well. Okay. Well, it doesn't get much better than that. So, no. What, what, a follow on that, though, is, is, I mean, you've been in reliability for a while. You've been doing various things and system reliability work and hard yeah. drive work in, in particular. Yeah. I'm tempted to ask you about MTBF of a hard drive, but I'll save that for <laughs> later. Yeah, that's a good idea. But the... the, the one of the key ideas, though, is, is uh, was it worth it getting a PhD? It was. So, as you know, my company I worked for uh, was a startup, and it went uh, insolvent. It went broke. So, in, as a result of that, I've uh, started consulting. Mm -hmm. And I find it very beneficial 
to have the PhD. I, I learned a lot getting it, mm -hmm. but it also helps business-wise uh, to have that uh, extra little credential. Right, right. And it's usually very successful reliability or any consultant is, has a book, has been on Oprah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going on Oprah. Or, you know, or, or has the education, the formal education that yeah. the people can bring into their organization by with the consultancy. That's really what it's sort of saying is that this, there's formal education behind Right. All the guys work, and it's the work should be pretty sound. And it's been vetted, basically. Yes, yeah. And Dr. Pe Peck, I, from what I understand, puts you through some paces, and, or his team does, I should say. Yeah, his, he's got a very uh, powerful way of vetting people. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, and, and a corollary of that is, well, what makes a good reliability engineer? I mean, because the way it sounds like we're talking is, well, everybody should get a PhD after some years of, in the experience. But what makes the difference between a really good in reliability engineer and one that's not? So I, I'll, I'll talk about what I think makes me a good reliability engineer. Because okay. it's, it's hard to generalize to everybody. That's right. And, and, and I'd agree that you are a good one. I've seen well, you at, well, thank at work. You. <laughs> but what I found is that uh, I used to fix everything. If it was broken, I would fix it. I worked on cars that were broken. I worked on everything. And it provides you a knowledge of how things break, mm -hmm. which is really important to reliability. How do you keep things from breaking? Right, right. What are the things you look for? And so whether I'm working on, on cars or electronics, uh, I, I brought that knowledge with me. And so I'm using them today. I'm mm -hmm. working for a, a solar company that is... Uh, sells trackers and so they have a one degree of, of motion with a motor uh, it's an old dc brush type motor which looks astonishing like the old generator on my old cars <laughs> except it's being driven <laughs> so i understand the brushes the whole the technology the weaknesses of it how you fail them uh, and so that that's very helpful most people Students coming out of school these days don't want to study DC motors. They want to move on to integrated circuits and digital things. So in that case, it really helped me a lot. I also have a good feel for mechanical things. What's going to make them break? What what will keep them strong enough so they won't break? The kind of materials you use. Mm -hmm. And so I've been using that recently as well, too. But there's, a, there's an element of material science in a lot of what we do, whether it's electronics or mechanical. Yeah. I took a class in college that I, it was an elective, and I took it just because I needed two units. It was on corrosion and materials. And, <laughs> That's foresight. And, <laughs> and it turns out to be one of the most, most exciting uh, courses I took because I'm still using that knowledge. People wow. want to know, why is this corroding or what are the problems? Is this going to shorten the life of my product? Uh, and so it's, it's been very helpful. When big white chunks of it are flaking off onto the floor, <laughs> it's probably easy to answer that. <laughs> and, and then the material science, uh, somebody wanted to make a flange out of aluminum, and it had been made out of stainless steel. And then he said, well, the aluminum's too, too weak. So I suggested some specific uh, alloys of aluminum, the 70-75-T5, and, and it was actually 70-75-T6. And he, he uh, used that, and it's extremely strong. I mean, if you start looking at the tensile strength, and it's quite good. Right, right. So he just designed it using that. He kept his cost down, and we got a good, strong product. It's awesome. Now, I'm going to go back to that, the, you know, taking things apart and seeing why things failed or fixing yeah. things is, yeah. is that corollary. Now, some of that, some people look at a, a broken device, and it's all black magic to them. Yeah. And you don't, you're not a master in mechanical engineering and a master in electrical engineering, a master in software, and 
but what why what's the separation between why you would take things apart and go fix it or attempt to fix and understand it whereas frankly many people don't well some of it was because I was brought up without a lot of money so I had to fix things if I wanted to work well, but the other is just a, a keep curiosity yeah, keep the car running <laughs> you get you got an old cheap car fix it but some of it's just a curiosity of, of how, how do I make it better? What do I what do I do to keep this from breaking again? I don't mm -hmm. want it to break a second time. And I think that's that curiosity part. There's of a it. curiosity, and it started off as a as a mechanical engineer, but I have branched off, and so you say not a master of com computer science and uh, software, but I have learned quite a bit about electronics mm -hmm. again because I've had a lot of years of experience. I had a I had a lab for one place. They said make things more reliable and I went in there and the first thing I did to start playing around with uh, devices and trying to follow the, the spec sheets and managed to cause a couple of fires. So it, was, <laughs> it was a good learning experience. <laughs> the senior managers are looking at the fire department coming running in and <laughs> probably not thinking the same thing. Yeah, well. <laughs> but you also, I, I know you spent quite a bit of time working with hard drives. Yes, uh, And it was part of your thesis. And hard drives, from what I understand, and, and a lot of it you've told me about is, I mean, they're electric, they're, they're circuit boards and drivers and, and sensors and electronics in them, but there's also this mechanical system and drive motors and, and tight tolerances, and then that the, the read-write head is really an airfoil. Right. And, and it doesn't take much to cause immense damage in those systems. Yeah. But... It also is one of those systems where you've got mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, systems engineers, you know, and, and I don't know, do chemists get much involved with the... They do, it's corrosion. The corrosion, yeah, internal? Yeah, cor corrosion could be a problem, yeah. So okay. chem they have chemical engineers working on it. And, and I understood at one point, I don't know if you told me this, but they had like these aviation engineers, these guys that knew about airfoils. I don't think I told you that, but uh, it's true. They designed the heads, they have what's called a negative pressure. So instead of having the air raise the head up in mm -hmm. the air, they, the air as it moves actually pushes it down to a controlled height from the disc. So some of it's the tension of the arm. The, the tension of the, the spring wants to kind of keep it up. But the airfoil actually drags it down to the, just the right height the to right do height. the. Yeah, yeah, we do, the, and then we put it in laptops and throw it in our bags and. Well, the lap, the most of the drives used in laptops have uh, accelerometers and sensors to know when you're falling, and they also have the ability to move the heads off of the media so they're not on over the top of the media onto a ramp. It's called a ramp unload. Right. So if something happens, the head is not above the media at that time. So if you drop if it, it crashes, that's. Where the damage comes yeah, from. Yeah, if, if, if it stayed above the median, you dropped it, the head would hit the surface, and then you put a, a mark, a defect in your surface. And right. It, it, one of the things, though, is that we're using hard drives, you know, between, and is it spinning disks that the, the cloud services are using? The, I, I don't know for sure. I think it is, because the, the proposition is either uh, spinning disks or uh, flash. The solid state disk, right. but solid state disk is faster, but it's also more expensive. So if I'm trying to build a giant farm, uh, I, I can increase actually my uh, input by using RAID by striping it across multiple disks. Mm -hmm. So I can achieve some pretty good uh, data rates very inexpensively. So it's true, it's not as fast as using the front end of a data storage system. But then, do they need it? 
Right. If you're up on a cloud, the, the, the latency between me sending it up to the cloud and being written, the, the latency of me sending it, it takes more time than writing it. Getting so, out of the house a lot of times. Yeah, getting out of the, the house. The first mile kind of thing. So I think, and I've read quite a bit about it, there's still a huge demand for spinning disks because of the, the cheap price. Uh, and using them in the proper way, in the proper uh, situation. They're not categorically best for everything. That's right. true. It's true for many, many products. So it's yeah. found a, a, a nice application and niche, and it's, yeah. it's working in that area. But you mentioned RAID, and, yeah. and I know that for most of my career in reliability engineering, it was on single devices, like an inkjet printer, and it's a series system through right. and through, and other devices like that that were... They're not part of a larger structure or system. I mean, the most complex system I'm even familiar with is probably my car. It's also, in essence, in series, all the various subsystems in the car. But the RAID system, the little bit I know about that, that it gets complex very quickly. And, and the Weibull statistics and doing failure analysis that way doesn't really get me very far. Well, so RAID is a redundant array of inexpensive disks. And the whole, is it in, inexpensive disks? It was inexpensive back when they first started. Now they change, well, that's, let's change it to independent disks. Oh, but they're okay. not really independent either. If you're, <laughs> <laughs> I so, like the inexpensive disks. Inexpensive. <laughs> so uh, it, it's a system, and there are different ways of architecting RAID. Uh, RAID 4 and 5 have N plus 1 redundancy in terms of reliability speak. So this is the N out of K formula that we see in most books? Yeah. Or okay. and then uh, um, RAID six has two spares. And it, it, in terms of reliability, it's kind of a, the you call it an active spare. They're at, they're used though because uh, the data when it's written they create what's called parity, and they write the parity to this extra disk. So then when one of them goes down, you basically have enough information on the parity disk you can recreate any one disk. In RAID 4 or 5. So it's not or, as expensive as a complete writing in two separate systems, no. complete parallel redundancy. No, because in that you need twice as many disks as you have data. Right. And, but and the, the issue you're trying to solve is what if I lose one disk out of that five or six that are sitting there? One, losing one disk out of five disks is not a problem. You just reconstruct the data and put it back on it. Right. And on so you a, can, a new on one. the fly, you just yep. keep on rolling. Yeah. So they, they have it in the N plus one, you can tolerate one failure. When you replace that disk, and usually it's just a logical incorporation in a, in a rack, mm -hmm. uh, you can then use the remaining ones to recreate the data you lost, whether it's the parity disk lost or one of the data disks. Well, how long does that take to occur? And this one's just pure curiosity, because if I'm putting, I'm thinking of Murphy's law, if, I, if I'm trying to recover the photo that I just deleted from my system, from my cloud backup system, and, it just, and we have the second failure where that disk the primary disk where it's stored gets lost, and it's now in this parity recreation part. How long does that take? It can take uh, hours, which okay. is why you go to RAID 6. Okay. So RAID 6 <laughs> has two redundant disks. Okay. And they do, it's, uh, uh, some of the companies do it on diagonal striping. So you, you keep two, two parities that are created by different combinations of data. And so now you can tolerate two failures and you can reconstruct two complete disks. I mean, you can reconstruct one disk much faster. Uh, yes, but sometimes reconstructing two disks can be almost as fast. The two disks are writing data independently, so the, the bottleneck would be reading. If they're trying to read the same data at the same time, it'll right. slow it down. Okay, okay. But the, 
more and more of us are using, you know, like a Dropbox and Google Drive and mm -hmm. all of this off cloud storage facilities yeah. and stuff. And those are all on these kinds of systems, these RAID 5, 6, or does it get more complex than that? I, I think they are. I don't know for sure. The only other alternative would be going to uh, solid state storage. And I think that it's too expensive to be putting solid state on a cloud device. Right. I, I, as a, I wouldn't do that because you can get the reliability you need for a lower cost. And I'm, and I'm thinking that when the speed of like that is, is, is Wall Street and transactional speed and yes. all those things where you need to recover information very, very fast. See, that's, that's where you need it. It's, it's on the near uh, storage that if you're right, if, if Wall Street's trying to do something, they need it screamingly fast. They need it to go onto a flash drive. And then at some appropriate time, they take that and put it onto some backup. Right. And the backup is oftentimes a hard disk, a hard disk because yeah, it's right. cheaper. That's right. That's you can right. afford to take another few hours, but in the middle of transactions, you cannot afford to be slow. That's right. So have you seen any interest? I mean, hard drives, I remember the first 20 megabyte drive costs five, six hundred dollars or something like that. And now I can get a 128 gigabyte thumb drive for, you know, the solid state little chip. And do it a fraction of the price, but is this a Moore's law thing? Are these drives and densities and so on? So far, it's not, and I don't. It, that's a good question. But so far, the density, aerial density of the hard drives and the cost basis is keeping pace with the price reduction of the solid state drives. That is, they're still increasing capacity, decreasing cost. So that I mean, the old. 20 megabyte drives was a big box yeah. essentially and now it's like i get a i think my spinning drive in my laptop is 128 gig and it's cheaper yeah, yeah. Than it was. oh yeah oh yeah and i just bought some that are you know 250 to 500 gigabytes and that's not even very big right right the, the bigger ones are a terabyte two terabytes and that's would be for a home desktop you can put those in. Well, I, I, the problem I have with doing that on the home desktop is that's like too much room, too much storage. You throw everything never, in there and you never clean it out. Never, yeah. <laughs> the downside so, is too so, much memory. So my, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you almost need to have a smaller amount than you really think you need just so you'll go clean it up. Well, you and I remember the, the you know, those first drives or, or floppy drives yeah. when we had to store it on that. You had to think long and hard about what you were oh, keeping yeah. or not. I, I saved an eight-inch floppy just for posterity, so I could say I had one. You had one. <laughs> <laughs> you have a drive for it? No. <laughs> Go down to the computer museum. And yeah, I sort it out. You donate it to them. Yeah, I'm sure they've got a box or two sitting around. Over I, there. I do have some some uh, smaller floppies that were were more conventional, but I. At some point, I just said I I can't I don't anything to read them with anymore, and I threw them all away. They're just all That's in the garbage. Right. Yeah. It's fine. Um, so I want to wrap up a little bit, but I mean, we talked a little bit about drives and a little bit about engineers and where good engineers come from. And it's not like curiosity. And, and, and how did you pick hard drives way back then? I was... Or did you pick hard drives? Well, I, I picked a company, Tandem Computers. I remember them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were created from some guys from HP, right? Right. So uh, I worked for a tandem, and they had the need for reliability, and there was nobody there that was looking at reliability of the storage systems. And that's basically what their forte is. It was a storage system. Right. So, uh, I mean, they had, a, they had computers running them, but they had fault-tolerant everything. They had, And so I started focusing. I had engineers that were 
uh, more versed in the electronic side of things, so I said I will pick up the hard drive side of things. It's a mechanical mm -hmm. device, and I'm good at mechanical things. So. You're breaking lots of things, yeah. Dryers, so you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I picked up on that. And that was a, probably around the 1990s, sometime. Okay, so uh, pretty early in the pretty early in the dryers. Yeah. They were still using uh, five inch, five plus inch drives. Then some of these were these the, when I was recorded. in college. Not much earlier than that, they were using these big drum drives. Yeah, no, it, they had some in the field that were large drum drives that people wanted to replace with more large drums because of compatibility. Mm -hmm. You can't take a. It's it's hard if you have a, a, a redundant RAID system and put on drives of different capacities. So they all want the same capacity. They have to be the same speed. The same latency, same specs. I've heard yeah. advice online a couple of times that if you buy a RAID system, you should buy the spare drives at the same time to get them as closely matched to yeah. the original drives. Yeah, that's probably a good idea because even if you if you go to two two major suppliers of disk drives and you get them that the specs nominally sound the same, mm -hmm. they're not always the same. They don't and, share all their design <laughs> specs with each other. <laughs> they don't even share. Yeah, no, they don't. And so sometimes. It's, it's insidious things that you don't really think about. For example, if you have an error in your data, how much retry does the drive go through to get the data? Mm -hmm. If you have a single drive, it does a lot of work to try to get it because the system that, you know, knows you only have one. If you don't get it now, you're, you're, you're lost. So it right. does things like reading off, off track and uh, a lot of steps. But there are others that don't do as many steps. So if you start pairing... Uh, a drive that I'll, and I'll make up a number does 200 steps to try to recover with one that does uh, 50 steps to recover you're going to have different recovery times right and so you're going to get a timeout the driver is going to not know which one is the well, right the one the operating system says you're taking too long you're failed right, right. even if you're not failed if you're out there looking for stuff right so uh, the the integrators try to maintain consistency so that they know anything lasting longer than whatever they want their spec to be, that's, that's a, they would it's consider a, problem, a failed drive, it's a problem drive. But if you get them, they're, they're just operating differently, then you can have a bad decision. Okay, all right. I never thought of that. I think that advice I saw, of course I believe everything I read on the internet. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's a, do you track like the consumer ones, or are you more in the, in the enterprise side? Out of curiosity, right now I, I work mostly with the enterprise and the near storage, or, uh, but and I don't do a lot with uh, the, just your basic desktop drives. But since I own some, I do know that they're getting better. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, is there anything else? You'd like us, to, and one of the thoughts, one thing we didn't talk about, I should ask it this way, is that I, I think you mentioned that you're, you're consulting now. It's been for what, four or five years now? I started doing consulting in 2010. Yeah, so just just moving into your sixth year, yeah. somewhere in the, whatever your anniversary is for that. Yeah. yeah. Is, is this the first time in consulting? Have you always been in companies prior? Yeah, I've only been in, I was. In companies prior to that time, in 2010, I started working consulting as, as well as working for a company with, with our concurrence in different mm -hmm. topic areas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was doing consulting in data storage systems and I was working for a solar company. Yeah, uh, a little bit different. A little bit different, yeah. But the, but the work I had in the solar company made it so that when they went out of business, I could now do consulting in, in solar companies. 
That's right. So, yeah. uh, I, but I have, I try to you get a small number of clients that want an in-depth analysis of something. Mm -hmm. And usually systems require a fair amount of in-depth. A lot of work. I also yeah. do a lot of data analysis. And I've written some papers showing how uh, it's possible, and I, I analyze some data that I can tell exactly when a manufacturer changed their process by looking at the data, field data. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Uh, I think you presented that at Rams one time. Yeah, I did. Uh, so that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll we'll link to uh, help me get the reference for it. And we'll point to the paper. Okay. And, and I don't know if you have it posted someplace. You could point well, to I'm, it. my website uh, www.lrfreliability.com. Okay. I have some sample papers. Oh, good. That, we'll that put I, that in the notes then. Okay. Yeah. So I uh, can You can anybody can go there and look at them, see what they want to see. Yeah. And then uh, call and, the author for the real questions. Well. I call the author for the real for the real the questions they get from uh, yeah with the with good questions based on yeah. some research yeah <laughs> well these, these are my papers I know so oh, call, call, you call me yeah they'll maybe they'll call me my phone <laughs> number's there okay yeah and uh, I'm more than willing to talk about anything I've done in the past if there's questions about it sometimes people bring up some good questions and yeah it's always another opportunity just, to learn yeah sometimes just clarification you know. Yeah, yeah, and you've been good to me over the years and helped me understand a bunch of different things and, and, oh, and do that stuff. So I appreciate it. It's uh, one of those that I've learned a lot from, and that's really part of the, this idea. It's really part of the, the idea of the, this show is to get to know the people that are consultants and, and industry leaders and thought leaders of the package. So thanks for participating. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Exactly.